and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things Black history and beyond. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 70 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I will be your host as always today. Now today's episode is going to be a similar one to the one done on Barbados um, a few weeks ago because Jamaica seemed to be next. Jamaica, a new republic, is what we're going to be talking about today. Now, there was a royal visit. Um, William and Kate went to Jamaica. They've done a Caribbean tour, a royal tour. And their time in Jamaica was not the traditional response, shall we say, to a royal visit. Um, Similar things happened in Belize as well. Um, And we'll reference them and talk about them in the episode today. But I wanted to think about Jamaica and where they are right now when it comes to being um, part of the Commonwealth with the Queen as a head of state. They've been independent for 60 years. Um, However, the Queen is still the head of state there and becoming a republic like Barbados would change that. Um, And they are hoping or have set the wheels in motion for that to become a reality soon. So we're going to talk about that today. In today's episode, we will be thinking about Jamaica um, and our first section will be a brief history. Very brief because it's something I feel like I've talked about before a lot on this podcast. Most notably episode three, which was um, Ray and his nephew. I think I went into the history of Jamaica as an island being colonised by the Spanish and the English. So I think that one has been done and spoken about. I would go back if you want to kind of know about that history a little bit more in depth. Um, because the explanation I give today will be quite brief. Second section will be about the royal visit, the protests, the, uh, shall we say, unfortunate photo angles um, and pictures that came out of it. Um, And our third section will be about, you know, what's next for Jamaica, the referendum, will ministers decide? And our fourth will be about reparations, because in the kind of midst of all this symbolism of removing the Queen of, as a head of state, which to me is quite a symbolic move, the call for repre- reparations is what I hear the loudest. Now, I think it's what England is ignoring the loudest or kind of refuting uh, and refusing to acknowledge even conversation about that. Um, but it is a very big request and one that Caribbean islands have put to Britain repeatedly there have been numerous petitions to a variety of governments about reparations um and you know Mia Motley I think she was on British morning television um a few years ago I think it was 2020 actually making a call for uh, reparations Jamaica have asked um so many countries have asked so we'll be thinking about that today and what that will mean um for Jamaica for British people taxpayers and all that good stuff so kind of brief history of Jamaica is that there were no native people on the island of Jamaica Uh, it was an uninhabited Caribbean island fun fact there are actually 7,000 Caribbean islands um and they aren't all inhabited only about 100 of them are um and so yeah, always found that very interesting um, that these colonisers picked the ones they did, um, but they probably picked the ones that were the most habitable. Um, and out of those 7,000, obviously not all of them will be big enough to actually develop a whole nation on. So, Jamaica, 1494, Christopher Columbus finds himself there. 
um, there are already the Tainos people, Arawak people um, living there. They have travelled down from South America and inhabited this island. Spanish come, they essentially enslave some of the na- the Tainos and the Arawak people. They also um, bring disease with them and it eventually wipes them all out, um, or the majority of them anyway. Um, and then, you know, the Spanish carry on for a while, um, the slave trade eventually begins um, and that brings in enslaved African people to the island as well. 1655 the English turn up um, there's a really brief kind of conflict and then the English have colonized Jamaica taken over from the Spanish the Spanish flee um, and the slave trade kind of really ramps up um, especially in the um, like mid 18th century. Um, In this time when the British are there, um, there are several rebellions, um, and I think these are important to note. There's Easter Rebellion uh, by Taki in 1760, and these are all enslaved people rising up against the British um, and their kind of the plantation owners and overseers. There was a Christmas Rebellion in 1831 led by Sam Sharp. 1865 there was a Morant Bay rebellion led by Paul Bogle um I just really hate this narrative that people tried to push that slavery ended because um Britain realized it was morally wrong and thought golly gosh we should stop doing this that's not the case um and we'll get into some kind of arguments against that later but there were several rebellions you know there were the maroon wars which we've spoken about on this podcast as well 1739-1740 there was so much pressure by enslaved african people in jamaica on the british government on the plantation owners and overseers because they were not happy with the conditions they were living under in servitude um and they you know were actually rising up to say, no, this is not what we want. And they were dying in the process. They were becoming martyrs, you know. They were losing a lot to fight for the freedom of themselves and others. And, you know, this spirit of rebellion is very strong in Jamaica, I would say, um, historically um, and, you know, in the present day as well. Um, Slavery is abolished, the slave trade first, and then slavery is abolished um, But first, there's like a seven year period of apprenticeship where all the enslaved people are still essentially slaves. Um, They call it apprenticeship um, because they were like, quote unquote, learning to till the land and, you know, run it for themselves. But realistically, they've been doing that in servitude for however many hundreds of years. So, you know, that's enough about that. By the 1930s, um, there were labour protests because the majority of the people are still working the land, um, being paid to do so, but being paid really poorly. A lot of agricultural workers really unhappy with working conditions and pay. 1930s protests um, across other Caribbean islands as well, um, but in Jamaica too. In 1958, this is a real whistle-stop tour, please keep up. Um, a federation of around 10 of the Caribbean countries kind of tries to to take root um to kind of create this like area of of people together um nations together in this federation but plans actually fail that's there's a whole like politics behind that that would be a whole like series of episodes um but by 1962 um Jamaica has pushed enough for independence from the British they become um a parliamentary constitution and the monarch of England, 
Queen Elizabeth II at the time and still now um, becomes the head of state and they have um, a prime minister. So very similar to the system in Barbados. I would suggest to understand that because I'm not going to go and explain all of that again and what these terms mean. Episode 53 is where I talk about it. Um, actually, no, it's 55. Episode 55 is Barbados. Um, they did what Jamaica are now trying to do. So a lot of the language, um, you know, terms like parliamentary, constitution and republic and what all these things mean are explained in depth in that episode. So feel free to go back if you didn't listen to that when it was released, um, however many months ago. So Jamaica at this point is... Head of state is the Queen, they have a Prime Minister, they have two um, kind of main part political parties, the Jamaica Labour Party, and they are in power now, um, Prime Minister Andrew Holness, who you saw speaking to William and Kate in that kind of press conference where he said, right, we'll take the pictures, but also, like, we're making moves to become a republic, that one. Um, and then there is also the People's National Party, the PMP, um, and in terms of, like, kind of comparing it to English politics in a way um the pmp is more left-wing um so more aligned not necessarily with british labor but um politically leaning they're more on the left and the jamaica labor party which used to confuse me because obviously labor in this country is more left than the tories but in that in jamaica it's the jamaica labor party being a conservative party um they believe in individual personal responsibility and a market-driven economy, whereas the People's National Party uh, believe more in government intervention to support some of the kind of people in society that struggle to support themselves or haven't been able to, um, and kind of more in regards to, like, welfare and helping people in that sense. Um, so that's kind of difference with the two parties. Right now, the Jamaica Labour Party are in power, as I mentioned. Um, Andrew Holness is the Prime Minister. And Mark Golding is leader of the People's National Party um, at this time. And just to finish this history um, of the country, I think it's wise to kind of think about the other times in the past where Jamaica has toyed with the idea of becoming a republic. It's been suggested, um, it's been commissioned, there's been you know, reports into this. Um, and similarly to Barbados and the story there, it was something that has been debated in the 70s um, and the 80s and the early 2000s. And actually, um, even kind of more recently in 2020. Um, so this isn't something that's just come out of nowhere. I think most Caribbean islands have had this debate, conversation, even a referendum in some cases. Um, about becoming a republic, those that are still, sorry, um, underneath the Queen as the monarch and leader of their kind of country ceremoniously. The first Prime Minister to do that was Michael Manley um, and he was leader of the People's National Party and came to power in, in 1972, so 10 years after independence, um, and he established a commission into changing um, the system in 1975 um, and also in 1977, um, and he announced that Jamaica would become a republic by 1981, following a march to commemorate the Morant Bay Rebellion, which I mentioned earlier happened in 1865, led by Paul Bogle. So, you know, these kind of histories of slavery, rebellion, rising up, they all interlink into this conversation about um, republicanism. 
um, I will say. So, you know, I didn't say that for nothing. So remember that in the back of your mind. Um, however, he said Jamaica will be a republic by 1981, but his government were defeated in a general election in 1980 by the Jamaica Labour Party, who are a lot more conservative. Um, Edward Siaga was the leader at that point. And whilst he kind of also, mindset-wise, was a Republican in that he wanted um, Jamaica to become a republic, um, he actually didn't do anything to, to make that happen. Politically, there were a lot of things happening at that time. The 1980s were probably a peak in political violence in Jamaica. Um, the 1980 election and the 1978 election before it actually saw hundreds of people dead actually through political violence um and so that was something that had to be kind of encountered um, and dealt with culturally um as well as politically within society um reggae music played a huge part in that um and some of the kind of imagery from that time is um very important and something that someone has actually requested an episode on so it is on my list to do um and i won't get too far into the political violence um that was happening but it was something high on the priority list of the Prime Minister to deal with at the time. Um, not to make excuses for him to not make Jamaica a republic at that time, but I can imagine um, as to why that wasn't a priority then. And then at a People's National Party conference in 2003, PJ Patterson, who was leader um, of the PMP at the time and Prime Minister, um, expressed that he hoped Jamaica would be become a republic by 2007. He said the time has come. Um, when we must have a head of state chosen by us. The majority of people in Jamaica are ready to co-sign to history the past vestiges, last vestiges, sorry, of colonialism. However, um, it didn't happen, <laughs> um, as you can imagine, um, because there were attempts at the same time to abolish the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council um, as the final court of appeal in Jamaica and replace it with a Caribbean Court of Justice, um, and so that meant that there had to be kind of change in the constitution, um, and the JLP were opposing that, um, and so they basically made their support for becoming a republic conditional on a referendum being held for these judicial changes, um, so they kind of said, yeah, you can have republicanism if you give us this, um, and it didn't, it didn't work out. Um, and then the PMP were defeated at the 2007 general election. Um, and Bruce Golding, leader of the Jamaica Labour Party, um, he promises that his government would um, essentially replace the Queen with the Jamaican president. But again, <laughs> they're voted out before they can do it. Um, this happens a lot. Um, it happens in 2011. Portia Simpson Miller, PMP leader, um, comes in, um, they lose their power in 2016 before bringing about constitutional change um, and Andrew Holness um, has been Prime Minister since um, and he seems to be the one that might be doing it. However, no one is sure how just yet because in Barbados they just took the decision um, as kind of a government because that was one of the their main policies that people voted uh, Mia Motley's party in on. However, that wasn't something that was kind of used um, by Andrew Holness to get into power. So 
it isn't really kind of certain that the Jamaican people would actually support that in its majority. Now, you might be thinking, well, they were protesting when the royals visited, but not all of them. And so we have to remember that, you know, this is a democracy. And I think most people seem to be of the feeling that a referendum is needed um, for this change to be made, um, which is a little bit different to the situation um, in Barbados. Now, the People's National Party, um, I think they've been quite clear that they've wanted um, Jamaica to become a republic in recent times, especially commenting after 2020 and the Black Lives Matter resurgence um, of that movement and also following Barbados. Um, Their leader has said, you know, yep, absolutely. Um, And the country, as you can see, the political parties literally kind of swing in and out of of power. There aren't, like, in Britain, we've had, what, the Conservatives in power for 11 years. It's a little bit more kind of flipsy-flopsy in Jamaica. Um, and so this means that the the kind of electorate is, is somewhat 50-50, 60 sorry, 55-45 split. It's a lot closer um, of the people that actually vote than it would be in England. So a referendum could be really tight, you know? It's not clear how how that might go um however andrew holness has now made a point on the global stage at that at a very big moment and said that you know we're hoping to to be a republic by 60 years of independence which is august the 6th today it's march 28th it's very soon these things i mean they can happen very quickly but they can also drag out as we've seen in the past Um, with the history of Jamaica trying to be a republic. And now on to the royal visit itself. Now, they're on a royal tour, and I say them, I mean William and Kate, um, and it's to mark the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, which is obviously this year. Um, And it's kind of this idea that they want to present this, like, new modern face of the British monarchy, um, and it's necessary because, as we've seen, this idea of um, republicanism is on the rise, um, especially following the Black Lives Matter um, resurgence movement in 2020. Um, you know, the treatment of, of black people globally is not something the Caribbean just overlook because they were part and parcel of colonialism. They know what that experience is like in a different way. Um, they understand the workings of white supremacy and being the inferior one in a relationship. And in the Caribbean, the relationship was very paternalistic. Um, these European powers felt that they they were needed in the Caribbean. Um, you know, the Caribbean couldn't really cope without them. And I think it's a pushback against that narrative um, that we're seeing right now. So the tour started in Belize um, and there were protests there. Um, because there was a land dispute involving a charity um, that William is patron of. Then, obviously, in Jamaica, Prime Minister eventually told them that soon they'll be moving on. Um, And they actually got to Bahamas after Jamaica, which didn't make the press so much, I think, because um, of the kind of big blowout after Jamaica. Um, But it was still there. And um, in Jamaica, in the Bahamas, sorry, they urged um, the royals to issue a full and formal apology for their crimes against humanity. Um, And that is not just obviously William and Kate or referring to them too, because they weren't, you know, colonial monarchs. And whilst they've definitely profited 
um, from Britain's crimes against humanity, the slave trade, um, the wealth that the royal family has built up is a direct result of slavery. Um, there are no two ways about it. I mean, the Queen still has a crown that has jewels that were literally stolen from so many different lands um, in Africa and Asia, most notably. So there's absolutely no way that you can deny that they are recipients of the wealth of slavery. They have blood on their hands. Whilst they didn't necessarily cause the blood, their ancestors did. Um, and the time for apologies and atonement is um, seemingly here. However, they're not enough. Um, and that's where we get into kind of talks about reparations. But I'm going to save that for the end um, and talk about the protests in Jamaica. So protesters said essentially that the royals were still benefiting from the blood, sweat and tears of slaves. Um, and it was time to make amends. Um, and, you know, Britain was the world's greatest slave trader. Um, by greatest, I mean in numbers and not actually actual greatness, um, especially during the 18th century. Um, they sent nearly a million captive um, Africans to Jamaica between 1655 and 1807 when the slave trade was abolished. Um, and it led to a population of enslaved people, just over 300,000. Um, and you might be thinking, well, a million people were sent. How, how was there only a population of only 300,000? Well, the mortality rates were that horrific. They would die on arrival, they would die in the journey, and they would die very quickly because of the conditions of slavery. Um, slavery itself, um, you know, a lot of people today would say they might be the descendant of enslaved peoples and, you know, generations prior would have been enslaved in the Caribbean. But that's quite unlikely because there really weren't long lineages of enslaved people in the Caribbean because people would die so fast. So if you were kind of, I don't know, um, a man brought enslaved from Africa in the kind of early part of um, the slave trade, you know, it's very unlikely that your line of descendants, if you had children, would have survived to actually be kind of living in um, kind of post-abolition Jamaica and then in independent Jamaica because the death rates were so high, um, which is kind of, I think a reason why it's seen as so horrific and so brutal because, you know, the conditions there were literally killing people, young people, because they just couldn't survive the brutality of this system. And then you see a royal family that are swanning around in this country that they have profited off of. Um, and it, that just the imagery of that, just it just can't possibly look good. It just doesn't sit well with anyone, I don't think apart from people who I think um, purposefully just disregard what actually happened and, and are willfully ignorant about it all. Anyway, um, many royals, historically, were in support of slavery and profited, clearly. Um, some of them expressed anti-slavery sentiments, George III, as a young man did. But by the time he became king, he did nothing to stop it um, and obviously profited um, from it. Um, now, when you kind of fast forward into some of the abolition movements that happened in Britain with William Wilberforce at the helm, um, there were royals such as the Duke of Gloucester that supported him in his campaign. But most of the royal family, George III at the time, 
um, would have supported slavery and West Indian planters and, um, you know, did nothing to kind of stop it at that time. It was um, Parliament, I believe, that these acts went through, obviously signed off by the monarchy in the end. But this idea that the British monarchy ended slavery is just ridiculous to me yes they signed the paper yes they put the actual law into motion but for goodness sake if you start something like slavery there's like hundreds of year long process of dehumanizing people kidnapping them from their lands forcing them to work for free like oh i just don't understand how then you can pat yourself on the back for ending it like for seeing the light come into your senses it just doesn't make sense to me um, and also, then, we bring in an argument from a man called Eric Williams, who was the first um, Prime Minister of Trinidad, um, and he wrote a book called Capitalism and Slavery. And when I read this book, it changed my life forever. Um, and I think I've spoken it on about it on here before. It's actually been finally been published in the UK. This book has never been published in the UK. It was, like, completely disregarded. It was said to be lies. It wasn't true. Um, but it's... And I've the copy I have is from I think an American publisher yeah um University of North Carolina Press um and anyway this argument of Eric Williams is that slavery was not abolished um in the British like empire because um of like this moral compass and this idea that it was bad and we needed to stop it it ended because it was no longer profitable because forced labor whilst it was free it was obviously human beings doing the labor when at that time in Britain, we were jumping into the Industrial Revolution where machinery was, you know, pushing all these kind of advancements in society. So in comparison to what was happening with the Industrial Revolution, the argument is, is that slavery was no longer profitable. That's why it was OK for ministers, monarchs, everybody else to be like, yeah, we actually don't need to do slavery anymore. And less on the kind of abolitionist they saw the moral wrong that slavery was. Now, you know, he's evidenced his argument and it's an argument that I have been convinced by. Um, whether you agree or not, at the end of the day, you cannot pat yourself on the back for ending something that you started. I'm sorry. It just doesn't work like that. And so when people are trying to shut down claims for reparations by saying, well, actually, you know, it was Britain that ended it anyway, it's just nonsense to me. Um, and... As I said, we're going to get into reparations at the end um, because I've got a lot to say about it. But that's essentially the protests and where that was coming from. Um, and we'll get into some of the pictures that were taken that really were just very poor and in such bad taste. So I believe it was the second day of the royal visit in Jamaica and pictures surfaced. Um, and I will say now, social media for me is a bit of a scary place because... People get pictures, information, sources from anywhere and everywhere and use it to push narratives and agendas that aren't always true um, or accurate and miss. They miss a lot of context because you only have about 140 characters on Twitter or a little bit more now. But either way, a lot of nuance um, is lost on social media. Now, when I saw that picture of William and Kate with their hands, their very white hands through the gates and all these little black hands through the other side of the gate looking to touch the royals you know it just uh, it, it just d didn't look good and I thought there was someone there like an unofficial person like a, just an average Joe 
that just took that picture and it was a really poor angle because later on you see that Raheem Sterling was also there and he was hosting them in Trenchdown um they're having a football match and those spectators were behind like a kind of fence to watch the football match they weren't you know forced to be there they weren't caged in they were there by choice um and then you can kind of see that where Raheem Sterling is um kind of shaking their hands and like touching them and stuff it's not like they're like enclosed the gates kind of like open and his picture didn't look bad so I'm thinking oh my goodness like you know someone's taken this picture and it looks really terrible but it's a bad angle you know the kind of intent of it wasn't that and I think intention is important in a situation like this not always but in this situation however this was the official picture put out by the foreign office so (laughs) it's like this wasn't just someone that caught them at a bad angle this is like this is orchestrated now this was signed off by several desks this was you know agreed upon by a few people that I assume have been hired to be in this role to make the royal family look good. And they've done a spectacular job of doing the opposite. Um, and it just kind of highlights, I think, how tone deaf they are about this whole thing and out of touch they are. Like, parading around in this way. And when I say parading around, I mean on that Land Rover that was a second picture that was atrocious um, in, you know, their little colonial uniforms. Um, it just, like, I felt like I was watching The Crown um and i can't remember what season it is but it's when queen elizabeth ii and philip go to um i think it's kenya and like he meets with like the maasai people and like he's literally like oh oh, oh, why has he got that funny hat on if anybody's watched the crown you'll know what i'm talking about i can't remember the actual historical moment that that was from but it just reminded me of that just such bad taste like you you know as a royal go into these countries where you know, it's just been a pandemic as well. Like, people are in a bad way. Now, Jamaica wasn't hit as numbers death-wise as, you know, other countries were um, when it came to COVID. But, you know, they rely, I think, 70% of their economies based on tourism. That shut down. You know, they, they didn't allow any planes in. They didn't allow tourists in for a long time. Their economy is not in a good place, just like so many other countries in the world. But for you to then go there, lord it over them, I think... Kate's wardrobe was like £35,000 for her royal tour. It's just so out of touch with reality of like, these people are, not all of them, a lot of people in that country and over the world are really struggling. And like, I just, I think a royal tour at this time just makes no sense anyway. So for them to do it in that way, it just, just felt atrocious. It's, I don't know. I can't really see why people thought it was a good idea for this to happen at all now the next point I want to make is one I'm hesitant to make and I'm hesitant because this woman and this woman being Megan gets dragged into every conversation that and sometimes she's just it's not necessary but I want to make this point um because Beanie Man made it Beanie Man being a dancehall artist in Jamaica um and he said you know he would have been happier if maybe Harry and Megan did this tour obviously they have distanced themselves from the royal family um that's not about what this is about but interestingly enough i believe a country like jamaica has seen the way that the royal family have treated a mixed race woman like megan and if that's the way a mixed race woman who has been chosen by the queen's grandson harry he's in love with her 
they've decided to get married, start a family, start a life together. You know, he has chosen her with his judgment. If someone like her is treated so poorly in the royal family, at the hands of that royal family and the British press, why then would Jamaica expect to be treated any better as a nation of majority black people when the royal family can't even treat someone like Meghan, who essentially married in and became a royal um, in, in their initial kind of months after marriage, if they can't even treat her well? And... You know, we don't know who made comments about things like Archie's skin tone or who made Meghan's time really difficult in that family. But, you know, there's two people there that never spoke out against it that are now lording it over all these black people in Jamaica. Um, And I just think that whilst, you know, a lot of people were dragging Meghan into this like it's her fault, um, I do think there's a link there um, because this was a chance now with, with Meghan, I think, to actually potentially show a new face of the royal family of you know a a more accepting group of people um but the firm really showed itself it showed up and it showed out to be the racist institution that it's always been um and i think that's very important to to kind of link in when we think about this um beanie man said it and it's what got the thoughts like ticking in my mind um about the situation with william um i don't think he will be, if he becomes a monarch, he will be a popular one in comparison to Queen Elizabeth II. Um, And I think the fact that Prince Philip has passed away and, you know, there's speculation that, well, um, from very unreliable sources, um, the Queen isn't well or whatever. And, you know, she's, you know, she's taken a step back from royal duties um, for that purpose. Um, She is getting very old, um, you know, there is questions about who will be the next monarch. And I don't think that some of these countries that are still still have the British monarch as a head of state want to see a Charles or a William in that place at all. Um, and so, you know, that's also something to think about. Maybe this is happening right now because the Queen, you know, God forbid, don't wish anything bad on her, um, is getting old. Um, and there are conversations about a new monarch and they don't necessarily want that. Maybe they could tolerate it when it was Queen Elizabeth II. Um, but now it's like, nope. Um, and so that's just, you know, me thinking out loud in a sense. But, you know, things to think about and things to consider when we're thinking about what could happen next. And that's our next section of the podcast. What will happen next? Will there be a referendum? Will ministers decide? No, I don't know. And I hope that by the time I recorded this episode we would have some kind of knowledge of that. Um, However, the only thing that's been said is that the wheels are in motion, things are happening. So we can only hope um, that, you know, said politicians are making this happen and will do it in the most democratic way. I think that's what should be important in this process um, because at the end of the day, you know, they're moving away from this monarch that has not been elected by the Jamaican people. We're moving away from this person just having control in a way over um, an island like Jamaica. So, you know, the opposite of that should be democracy. And that would mean voting in um, whether Jamaica becomes a republic or not. And also potentially then voting in a head of state um, should that, you know, become what um, Jamaica do. Um, We're not sure what that will be yet, whether ministers will decide, maybe they'll put uh, put it to a vote in, in Parliament, um, we're not sure, but, you know, whatever is done should be done democratically and represent the majority of the people, because when you think about it, 
yes, there was a large portion of people protesting, but there was also a large portion of people ready to greet the royals. Um, and so I don't think it's going to be as like a clean cut decision as it was in Barbados. I don't think Jamaica mentally are in the same place that Barbados have been for a while. Um, and I'll leave that point at that. And my final point, reparations, the moment I've been waiting for. Wow, what a glory state would be if the Caribbean and Africa and Asia and all the other countries that Britain absolutely obliterated with its violent and brutal empire get reparations. You know, I'm not going to hold my breath because, well, these claims have been going on for a long time. But what I will say is that slavery was a very profitable institution for Britain. And slave owners at the end of slavery in its abolition, and the only reason, again, one of the only reasons um, that slavery was actually abolished was because the slave owners were happy with the fact that they would be compensated for their loss of labour and loss of human chattel. How wonderful. They were given, um, I think, £20 million in yesteryear's money, which was actually 40% of the Treasury's budget at the time. Today's money, that's £17 billion. Now, taxpayers were paying that off. And taxpayers, British taxpayers, so you and me, were paying that off until 2015. Now, I don't think I was paying tax in 2015, I was a child. But (laughs) parents, grandparents, you know, families, all of you people listening, if you're older than me, you would have been paying tax. You would have been paying back those slave owners for their loss of human property. Now, interestingly enough... When David Cameron was Prime Minister, um, Jamaica actually put this question of reparations to him on his visit to um, Jamaica. And I think Portia Simpson-Miller, leader of the PMP, was Prime Minister at the time. And he was like, no, you ain't getting reparations. Of course he would have said that. Um, And actually ended up um, instead building a prison um, in Jamaica, in which the British government then started deporting Jamaican people back to said prison that they had built in Jamaica. Anyway, people have then uncovered that maybe the reason that he said he wouldn't, you know, be happy with these reparations and this idea of reparations and kind of shut them up really quickly with this prison is because his ancestors were benefactories of that handout because his ancestors were slave owners. And you can even go on, there's UCL did, honestly, sensational research and literally got records and have created an online database so you can google a family name and see how much they were paid out at the end of slavery and see how much money they were given and then you can convert it into today's money and just see how much these people were given for the human property that they lost now david cameron's name is his ancestors um are on that register and the fact that UCL have compiled this is just nothing short of amazing. But you can see kind of the amounts that people were given. You can see the plantation names and you can see then how they link back to Britain. You can see how someone like Edward Colston gets his wealth and how much he's paid at the end of slavery. Things like that, you know, and or his family line, shall we say, um, and his ancestors. I don't think he had children. Um, but you can see all that. It's all there in black and white. So there's no real need for anyone to be ignorant or obtuse about the fact that since slavery ended and we acknowledge the fact that 
African people, enslaved people, worked the land for free and built up the British Empire to what it is with their free labour, they have never ever been compensated for that free labour, nor have their ancestors. Now, I don't suggest that we go and try and figure out who's a descendant of enslaved people and pay them some money, but these countries, like Jamaica and in the Caribbean, they are in an economically disadvantaged position because the people that now, you know, populate the land worked for free for hundreds of years. And it's a very simple idea to just, like, pay them back. I don't understand. Well, obviously, I do understand. It would absolutely decimate the British economy. But that's another point. Um, And I believe that the last petition Jamaica made was for 7 billion. So considering, you know, 17 billion was paid to the slave owners, they're only asking for 7 billion, um, which I say only never seen that much money in my life, never seen a fraction of that. Um, However, I think it's very interesting, um, these conversations about reparations. And I don't doubt that figuring it out would be so messy to kind of, you know, equitably figure out who deserves what. But like, I think even at this point, like a sizable gesture to apologise and atone would be fine. Yep, I think I'd be okay with that. And it's interesting because... You know, since then, we've had the Windrush generation migrate here and they would have been paying off those slave owners because that tax was only paid off in 2015 and they worked in this country from the 50s and paid some heavy tax money. Um, You know, if you're living in Britain, you probably aren't going to benefit from any reparations paid to the Caribbean um, directly because obviously, you know, we don't live there. But to see those nations kind of, you know, be in a better situation economically... Um, and that that labour be acknowledged properly, um, I think would be very, very important, even for us here in Britain and not, you know, necessarily directly economically benefiting from from any kind of reparations that are paid, um, which is an interesting part of the debate I have found. Now, that is all I think I'm going to say about that. We will stay tuned for Jamaica actually becoming a republic. Now, I'm not holding my breath, just like the reparations, because... You know, as I've said, there were people that welcomed the royals in Jamaica. There were people that were very happy to see them. Um, And the mindset is very different to Barbados. Um, And it will be very interesting to see if this happens by August or if the party gets voted out before, just like it has in the past. Um, And it takes another political party and another royal tour for it all to start up and happen again. But we will stay tuned. You know, they have the blueprint of Barbados, a very recent blueprint. Um, and, you know, more power to Jamaica um, as they go on this quest to seek justice for what's happened to them historically as a nation. Um, more power to them. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter.